First Thessalonians chapter 5, we'll begin reading at verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem the very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Father, we, we ask you now to allow your word to settle into our heart. Remove all distractions of this day and this hour, and let us focus on Jesus. Let us focus on your holy word and let the Holy Spirit do its holy work within us. Bless our pastor as he comes forward. Give him a clear and strong voice to preach Jesus and his truth. It's in your name we pray. Amen. We've been looking at the book of First Thessalonians through these three lenses, faith, hope, and love. And the whole book really is helping us to see how that works, how those three vital signs help us to determine where we're at spiritually no matter who we are, whether we're Christian or non-Christian. And the question is, how do we love? What or who do we trust? And lastly, what do we hope? So today I'd like to turn to this passage and speak about love again, as we are cycling back to that aspect of those trio of themes. Everyone, everyone, everywhere believes that love is a good thing. No matter what religion or what idea of God they have, or if they have no idea of God, or they think there is no God. Everyone thinks love is a good thing, right? How many songs do you know about love? Love, love, love. Love is all you need, right? So many songs, we could recite them over and over, probably take up all morning. In fact, as Christians, we know love is critical. Love is at the foundation of living the Christian life. I read from John's Gospel, chapter 13, at the beginning of this service. And in verse 35, Jesus said, By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples by how you love one another. So love is a critical part of our Christian life. I say it's sort of Christianity 101. It's at the very foundation of what it means to be a Christian. So the question is, so why is it so hard to love? Everybody thinks it's good. Everybody wants it. Why is it so hard to love? Why are we hurt by love? Why do we find it so difficult to love one another in, well, marriage, family, church, society? Why is it so hard to love? So I'd like to consider our text as it talks about love. And I'm going to look at it in three aspects. Look at ourselves, look at others, and then look at the Holy Spirit. Just a few preliminary words as I turn to ourselves. So why is it hard to love? First, a look at ourselves. But here's some basic things we have to say about this text. As you look at the end of 1 Thessalonians, you may think, ah, Paul just threw together a bunch of random thoughts, you know, one sentence commands. And they may look that way when you first look at it, but then as you study them, you notice, wait a minute, these are things which are everywhere in the scriptures. You find them in the Gospels. Paul writes about them in many other places. Peter talks about them. Some of them James talks about. In other words, these are not sort of throwaway lines. But as we end 1 Thessalonians, these are the ABCs of the Christian faith. These are things that everybody should know about. 
These are things probably that were taught in detail and can then be reminded of very carefully. It's Christianity 101. So then I return to the question. Everyone likes to be loved. Everybody wants to show love. They know that's a high virtue and they want to live that way. So why is it so hard then to love? Think about it. In the Bible, we have commands to love. Why? Why do we need a command to love? We don't have a command in the Bible. Make sure when you're hot, drink some nice cold water. Make sure you get a good dessert after your meal. Those just come naturally, don't they? That's a natural part of our desire, of our life on this world. But we need to be told to love. There's bumper stickers. There's, have you noticed how many placards there are on lawns saying, I believe in love. Love is all we need. Why do we need those reminders? Why do we need to be told or taught how to love? It's clear, isn't it, that there's an admission here about ourselves. An insight that maybe we don't want to admit. But it's this, that love does not come naturally. I'm not saying we don't believe in love. I'm not saying we don't think it's a good thing. Yeah, we all do. But it doesn't come naturally when it comes to actually doing it. And that's especially true with Christian love. We have to work at it. In fact, as I'll show in a few moments, there's a battle when it comes to loving, a battle within us when it comes to showing love to other people. Why is that? Well, I think it's very simple, isn't it? Love, well, what's love? Love requires us to give of ourselves, right? But the natural inclination of every human being is to get. Am I getting what I want? Am I getting ahead? Am I being respected the way that I expect I should be respected? Are people caring for me the way I want to be cared for? That's the natural inclination. So why is that our natural inclination? Well, you know, and I have to start here, it's because we are a fallen people, all of us, all of the human race. And so I'd like to begin actually with a text that we looked at last time to start to point you to that. It's chapter 5, 9, and 10, where it talks about the fact that Christ died for us. I think it was put up there. God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we awake or sleep, we might live with him. Now, why did Christ have to die? That's the question. And those are those other verses that you see there. Well, it's because when Adam and Eve, when our human race turned away from God, we ended up turning toward ourselves. Remember what the serpent whispered to Adam and Eve? You're going to be like gods. Oh, that was so exciting. I want to be a god. Anybody else want to be a god? Yeah, we all want to be gods. And so they ate of the fruit, disobeying God, and they thought they were gods. And the truth is, that's in us. It's in you and it's in me. There's something in us that wants to be treated like a God. There's something in us that makes us want the world to revolve around us. Admit it. Whether you think of your home or your family, even this church, wouldn't it be great if everybody did exactly what you wanted? You'd be happy, wouldn't you? If you got everything you wanted, nobody ever resisted you. Everybody said, oh, you're so wise and good, of course. There's in us, there's something in us that makes us want 
everything that we want, and we think that's right. So this first text, Genesis 3, is just what happened to Adam. Look how he turned inwardly. At the end of chapter 2, he's excited because he has this wonderful woman, Eve, as his wife, a gift from God, and he's exulting, he's singing songs. Oh, at last, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. But what happens the first time he's in trouble? After they sin, after they disobey God, after they're in the darkness because they've turned away from God, God comes to Adam and says, where are you, Adam? Have you eaten of that fruit? And his first inclination is to protect himself by throwing his wife under the bus. She did it. it was that, that woman over there, the one that you gave me, she did it. That's what we are. We protect ourselves. I'm the one that matters, no one else. A generation later, you know what happened? This jealous rage and Cain rises up, it says, and killed Abel, his brother. Jealousy, self. And then all of the Old Testament is full of it. There's no exception anywhere. There's treachery, there's jealousy, there's selfishness everywhere. There's greed, there's hatred, there's the abuse of other people, there's using other people to get ahead. And the Bible hides none of it. It's right there. You might think it's different in the New Testament, and that's not true. There's a stunning example in Mark chapter 10, verse 35 and on. And actually, it's recorded in all the first three Gospels. Jesus' last week's of earthly ministry, and he's marching towards Jerusalem. And he's just told them that he's going to be crucified. He's going to die. And that just goes right over their head. They don't want to hear that. So they think he's going to the capital of Israel to establish an earthly kingdom. Oh, and James and John think, this is it. First come, first serve. Let's go grab the best seats if we can. So they go up to Jesus and ask for the seats, the positions in his cabinet of power and influence. That's the way we are. I don't care about the others. I don't care if I have to crawl over the others to get ahead. It's about me. It's our natural inclination. It's our nature. So here's this conundrum that we face. We all know that love is good. We love love, don't we? It's almost something that's built into us, really. Because we're image bearers of God who is love. So this idea of admiring love and knowing that we're made for love is part of us. But we can't actually love the way we're supposed to. In fact, the Bible describes us as weak and as helpless when it comes to doing what we were created to do before God. And I don't have to tell you this, right? I mean, you know this. I don't think there's a single exception in this room. Any relationship we have, we know that we aren't loving as well as we should. This is a reality in our lives. So, why all these commands to love? Well... Love has to come from a new nature, right? There's this nature which is a result of us turning away from God as a race, from Adam and Eve on. There has to be a new nature in us. And this new nature comes from a new birth. That's what Jesus said. It comes from the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ as we entrust our lives into his hands. A new beginning starts in our hearts, a new kind of life. And so in last week's text, chapter 5, verse 9, it says we were children of darkness. It talks about children of darkness, but he says now we are children of the day. Our very nature has changed, you see. And so what does that do? Well, it gives us 
a growing awareness of the Spirit at work in us, making us able to love. And so in the upper room, John 13, as I quoted earlier, here was Jesus, Lord and God, their teacher and their master. He bent down and he washed their feet. And then he said, see, this is how you should love one another in my kingdom. And we say, wait a minute. That's not what everybody else talks about. What kind of love is that? How do I ever love like that? In Philippians chapter 2, verse 4, Paul said something interesting. You see, it's a complete turnaround from our nature, which is to think only of ourselves. He says, remember what Christ did? Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to think the same way Christ did. He says, look no longer to your own interests, but to the interests of others. No longer to your own interests, but to the interests of others. From inside to outside. It's a new nature. He's talking about something profound that is going to be changing in the human nature. And how will that happen? Well, that's what 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 through 10 talked about, which we looked at last week. It's what Christ died for, to redeem us, to rescue us from what we had fallen into. And to lift us up, to become what God wanted us to be, and to start to work in us, to work in us so that progressively become more and more able to love the way Christ did. I want to just point this out. It calls us children of the day, but we don't become children of the day by working hard, by practicing it, by improving ourselves. It required the cross. It required the cross. New life comes from the death and the resurrection of Jesus. It comes by the power of the Holy Spirit of God. Now, here's what the Bible says, and we have to understand this. Just because you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't mean now you love perfectly. There's a battle now within us. Yes, yes, there is a new nature. Christ has planted in us a desire to love as he loved. But there's still this old nature which wants to please itself. This old nature is sometimes called the flesh. It's not talking about, you know, the protoplasm. It's not talking about the cells in our body. It's talking about this old nature which is inclined always to think about itself. And so there's a battle between what the Holy Spirit of God is doing in us and what the flesh is doing when it comes to this issue of love. Why? Why is love hard? Because of what's in us. Even when others are wrong, even when we're in a really crooked relationship, even when things aren't going the way we want them to, we have to ask ourselves, yeah, but what about me? Am I doing what the Holy Spirit wants me to do? And boy, those questions are hard questions. How do I grow to be more loving? That's a tough question to ask. So that's one reason why loving others is hard. It's because of ourselves. Here's the second reason. It's because those we are called to love are also fallen. And again, I don't need to prove this to you, right? They're also fallen. And so these verses in 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 15, talk about various people that we are called to love. Verses 12 and 13, let me read it. We request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. It's interesting, by the way, as you look at this in verse 12, that the leaders are not defined by their titles or their offices here, right? It's not by the lapel pin they wear, you know. That's not what defines. What defines those who we are called to love and highly esteem are by 
how they serve. And these words are very strong words. Those who labor, it refers to toil. It's exhausting, difficult work that they're being called to do. Those who have charge over you, that is, they manage you. That's the way the word is translated elsewhere in the New Testament. They actually take responsibility for you. And they admonish you. They're willing to speak the truth when that is what is required. It's what they do that qualifies them and gives them the label of leader. And yet, yet it's hard. It says, esteem them highly in love. We require that commandment because it's hard to do. It doesn't come naturally. Why is that? Well, I think because we see that they're fallen. They make wrong decisions just like we do. They use hurtful words. They sometimes stumble and fall no matter what they're trying to do. So because they're fallen, we feel like, why should I esteem them? They're just like me. And besides that, I think we have to admit, we don't really like anybody to instruct us like it says here. We don't really like anybody to have charge over us, whether it's the police or the government or teachers or church leaders. We really don't like that, and so it makes it hard to do what it says here, esteem them highly in love. It's hard. It's hard because of what other people are. And then verses 14 and 15 present really a whole zoo of people that we deal with in the church all the time. You see this, the unruly, the weak, the faint-hearted, and really evil doers. And all are to be loved. All of them have to be loved. Verse 14, the unruly, I know some translations have other words. It's not really those who aren't doing anything. It's not really idle. The word indicates somebody who's disorderly, undisciplined, and apparently a very hard group to deal with because Paul returns to this group at the end of the second letter. And then the faint-hearted, the timid, the discouraged. There's people like that. Maybe they're overcome by grief, as we saw in chapter 4. Maybe they've lost loved ones. They're not sure what's happening now to those loved ones, where they are, what will happen in the future. They're overcome with grief. Maybe they've seen failure and then failure upon failure in their life. Maybe they're those that are facing criticism or opposition even when they're trying to do good. There's some who are faint-hearted. Others are weak. The word is used in various ways in the New Testament. In James 5, it's used of those who are physically weak, that, that are sick. There's some that are suffering physically. Elsewhere, it's used of those who are weak in conscience. They're just bothered. They're just troubled by things which other Christians feel perfectly comfortable to do. Love all of them. They all need to be loved. See, it's a whole zoo of people. And then verse 15 hits hard. Even love those who do wrong. It's even in the church. There's some who will do you wrong and do me wrong. Love those who do you wrong. I, I don't know if you heard this some time ago. There was a story in the newspaper about two women in a choir who got into a fight. Why was it in the newspaper? Well, apparently their choir practice was on a Tuesday night. And the choir director pointed to them and said, hey, you're singing out of key. And the one who was pointed to said, it's not me, it's you. And she went like this to the woman next to her. And the woman said, it's not me, it's you. And they argued about it for a while, and apparently between Tuesday and Sunday, the flames grew hotter and hotter. And on Sunday morning, the first woman threw some caustic lie at the first woman. Police were called in. Charges were filed. It was in the newspaper. It happens in church. It happens on Sunday morning in church. Can you imagine? 
And then there are other injuries, smaller injuries. Smaller, at least in appearance, but they can hurt deeply. You know, prayer requests, which are means of spreading gossip. Lord, I pray that John won't get fired because of what he did at work. And everybody's thinking, ooh, I wonder what John did at work. We know how that is. A Bible study I heard about was held. Very godly thing to do, but the woman who organized it was really trying to gather together a group of people to kick out one of the elders in the church there. This hurts. I remember a wonderful, godly woman and her friend who was also just a wonderful Christian. And the first woman borrowed a vacuum cleaner from the second. And after some time, they had a falling out and this, this woman wanted her vacuum cleaner back and the first one wouldn't give it. And they both were coming to me, you know, why doesn't she give me back my vacuum cleaner? And I asked the other one, why don't you give her back? It's her vacuum cleaner. She says, yeah, it's hers, but she's got a nice brand new vacuum cleaner. She doesn't need this. She's just doing it to bother me. I'm not going to give it back. It happens. It happens even in church. It's natural. Hit back and not to love. So verse 15 hits hard. Just watch toddlers sometime, you know. If one bumps into another, one takes a toy, just watch for a few seconds. There's going to be some kind of retaliation, isn't there? And the same inclination is in us. It's a human nature. We hit back in some way. We avoid the person. We cut off communications. And sometimes it's worse. You know, it's throwing lie, caustic lie at somebody. Sometimes it's slander, lawsuits, violence. So there's a whole zoo of people we are called to love in church. Why is it hard to love? Well, it's hard to love because of what's in us. It's hard to love because of the people we're called to love. So what do we do? How to love? This text points me to the Holy Spirit of God. It's clear, isn't it, that we need help. I think this text is making that clear. It's commanding us, which means it's not something that's natural and automatic that just happens to us. We need help. It requires wisdom. Well, it requires insight into our own selves. I mean, who can shine a light on the parts of our own lives that we don't really want to see? It's difficult. And it's also requiring wisdom and insight into others. This kind of love that's described in verse 14 is not just warm feelings, is it? I mean, it's loving the idle, the faint-hearted, the weak, and then in verse 15, even those who do evil. Each Notice requires a different response. It's not one size fits all. You notice that? Who's wise enough to look into someone's heart and know what's really going on? What kind of person they really are and what kind of love would really build them up and encourage them in the faith? Who's wise enough to do that? That's why I say this points me to the Holy Spirit. It points me to Galatians 5. Here's what Galatians 5 verse 17 says. Galatians 5.17 says, For the desires of the flesh, now the desires of the flesh is what I was talking about at the beginning. It's what's natural to us. It's that inclination to think only of ourselves. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. Remember that battle I talked about? For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. And what do you want to do? Well, in our context, we want to love. Want to love others the way Christ loved us. There's a battle. Battle between the flesh and the spirit. So how to love? Well, to love we have to learn to say yes. 
of the Holy Spirit moment by moment in our mind and in our actions. So here's what it says in the previous verse. Galatians 5.16 says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. If you walk by the Spirit moment by moment, you render the flesh impotent. You take away its power over you. So what happens is that as we walk by the Spirit, day by day we see in ourselves the power of the Spirit growing. That's called sanctification. We're becoming more and more the way God created us to be. And we see increasingly the fruit of the Spirit in us. I want to point to this list that Paul gives in Galatians 5 because it has something to do with the text that we're studying today. So Galatians 5, 22 and 23 says this is the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. Now, what I want you to notice is there's a few words that are key here that are used again in 1 Thessalonians 5. You'll notice that the words peace and patience and goodness are also in our text. And it's the same word in the original languages. What I'm saying is that in order to love, Paul is pointing us to the fruit of the Spirit. Let me spell this out a little bit more. How moment by moment, walking with the Spirit is the way to love the way we ought to. So what I'm saying is we have to do a kind of triage. You know what triage is? You, know, you go to the emergency ward, the nurses, the doctors have to figure out what's wrong with you and what's wrong with everybody else. They have to see what they can do and in what order they should do it. They have to figure out what is really happening with each person and treat them appropriately. We have to do a kind of a triage. Who needs the kind of love and what kind of love does each person lead? And that requires the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. So you notice that when it speaks about leaders, verse 13 ends with this fruit of the Spirit. Live in peace with one another. How do we love leaders? Well, here's how the fruit of the Spirit exhibits itself in that issue. Seek peace, harmony, the kind of order that glorifies God, that draws attention positively to the gospel of Christ. That's what Ephesians 4 says, you know, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so this is what God wants. This is what the Holy Spirit is doing in you and in me. But this battles against our natural instincts, our flesh. In fact, Galatians 5 described it. Some of the things that are happening in you and me that are battling against this desire of the Spirit for peace are enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, and division. It's in us. This battle is going on in us. And so it says what we have to do is seek peace. That's the fruit of the Spirit. I remember two women, I don't know why I'm picking on women here, but it just happened to be so. I remember two women who were on the committee to decide the decoration of that first sanctuary we built so many years ago. One was a fierce advocate of a theme of blue. The other really, really wanted greens. And, you know, every meeting was sort of, well, here's a nice palette of colors. Well, here's another palette of colors. And each were arguing, giving reasons back and forth. And boy, I'll tell you, it was going nowhere. You know who won? If you go there, you'll see what color it is, but that's not the one who won. 
The one who won was the one who finally came to me one day and said, you know what, this is not what worth fighting about. I just want peace. Let's move forward. That's the one who actually won because the Spirit won that battle in her. So how do we do that? How do we seek peace? I think there's this amazing practical example. It says, verse 13, esteem them very highly in love. It's a term that really means to know them, to notice them, to acknowledge them. I wonder if you notice those who are laboring hard here. And there's many who are. There's some you see. I mean, I'm up here. You see me. But there's so many who do so much, often behind the scenes. And they toil and they labor. And I'll tell you something. What is very easy to come their way is criticism because people speak up when things go wrong, right? People speak up. Oh, but to esteem them. Wouldn't it be wonderful for you to, how sweet it would be even for them to hear from you that you notice what they're doing, that you appreciate what, the, what, what they're doing, and for you to esteem them, to love them, and honor them for the sake of their work. They need your love. They need your love. Or here's the second group. It's in verse 14, this zoo of people that we meet. But look how it ends. Be patient with everyone. The fruit of the Spirit. Be patient with everyone. Love each person as he or she needs to be loved. But how do you do that? Well, you have to be very patient because the Holy Spirit will teach you in what manner to love each person. It's time. So notice the various words here. They're not all the same. Some we admonish. It says admonish some, encourage others, help yet others. It's not all the same, is it? We do different things for different people because the needs are different. And if we're wise, we recognize that, don't we? Imagine that you're driving with someone. Well, who that person is determines what kind of relationship you're going to have, what kind of words you're going to say. Suppose you're teaching someone to drive. Somebody young is driving. Well, you're likely to encourage them. You know, they make a left-hand turn. They're timid. They're tense. They're nervous. You say, oh, that was a great turn. You're doing fine. Just relax. Just keep going. On the other hand, suppose you're driving with someone who's a wild driver, going fast, skipping all the signs, going right through the lights. Well, you're liable to admonish them, right? <laughs> Scream at them. What are you trying to do? Kill us both? What if you're driving with someone who's sleepy? Idle, in that sense. I remember driving with a friend who said he'd drive me to New York City. We were going to go visit his family. Sounded wonderful. On the drive, he wasn't just sort of a little quiet. His eyes were closing. He was doing this. He was just driving. His eyes were closing. Do you want me to drive? No, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. You're not fine. Yes, I'm fine. And he went on like that. What do you do? Well, you yell, you scream, you bump him. You do anything you can. And all of that is love, isn't it? Each situation requires a different response. But it's all love. And so here it's saying it takes wisdom and really spirit-engineered wisdom because we can't see into the heart of someone. We're quick to judge people, but it takes time to know what's really going on inwardly inside a person. So it takes time. And if we get mixed up, we're likely to do the wrong thing. And so often we do. I know I feel so bad about all the times that I've misjudged people and made the wrong attempt at loving them and only 
ended up hurting them. I mean, the unruly, for example, I think the unruly can be a lot of fun sometimes. They're lovable, they tell jokes, they go with the flow, but if we encourage them, it's well, if we encourage them, it's like singing a lullaby to someone who's driving and sleepy. It's the wrong thing. It's going to hurt them. We have to be careful to know what's happening. The faint-hearted, those who are weak, maybe healing very slowly, gaining their footsteps very slowly. We may get frustrated. Come on, get on with it. Are you still dealing with that old problem? And we may just end up adding yet another load to somebody who's already crushed by what they're carrying. We need wisdom. So what that means is we have to wait patiently for the Holy Spirit. We have to wait in prayer and with the Word and hear what the Holy Spirit is saying to us in order to discern how to love each person. And so the fruit of the Spirit here, you notice, is be patient with everyone. That's what it takes. And then lastly, verse 15 says, love those well, who have done evil. And what's the fruit of the Spirit? Well, it's goodness, isn't it? Always seek after that which is good for another. It's challenging, isn't it, to respond with good to those who have hurt us, who have done evil to us. And yet, it's a core Christian duty. You'll notice that this is presented in many places in the New Testament. It's also presented in the Gospels. Let me read this for you in Luke chapter 6. Jesus said, if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. But love your enemies and do good. And look at what it says. You will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. See what he's saying? This is the way in which we demonstrate that we really are children of God. Everybody loves those who love them, right? That's easy. But to do good to those who harm us is a proof that we are like God, who is indeed our spiritual father. He's made us his children. It's Christianity 101, you see. It's basic. So this is the question this asks. Okay, somebody's hurt me. Am I seeking good for that person who has hurt me? Not just what I want to do to them. I think suffering a bit might be a good thing for him. Not just what he wants me to do, just leave me alone. Let me do whatever I want and I'll be happy. No, but what does God want me to do? That's what's good. How is the Spirit of God and the Word of God directing me to love this person? Love one another. Love is foundational. It's Christianity 101. And friends, when I look at this church, I see that you are loving one another. A few weeks ago, we looked at chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, and it says, the reason you know how to love is because, remember that word, you've been God-taught how to love. God himself taught you how to love. Your single word, you've been God-taught to love, and you do love. And then he says, but may you excel more and more. I pray that that's what God is doing in us. Thank God for how we love one another, but may we excel yet more and more. Amen. Let's pray. Lord our God, we thank you for this word which commands us to love, which reminds us, which reminds us that what we talk about and sing about is something that we must actually live out. And we thank you especially, Lord, that you have not just left us standing there with this hard command, but that you have given us 
a new life and that you filled us with your Holy Spirit. The power to move our feet and our mouths and our hands and love the way you want us to love. Bless your people in the name of Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. Quoted from John 13 at the beginning of this uh, service. It's, it's a love chapter. Just like 1 Corinthians 13 is a love chapter. John 13 is another love chapter. And it begins by an amazing word. Here was Jesus surrounded by these disciples who were confused. Who lacked understanding even though he taught them. They were thieves. They were betrayers. And they were doubters. And yet it says... But he loved them to the end. And then he said, love one another as I have loved you. I hope you know, I hope you all know how deeply and wisely and patiently Jesus loves all of you. And that's my benediction. May God pour out a spirit, the spirit of wisdom on all of you so that you will love others as Jesus has loved you. Amen.